welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond, and joining me, he's a little jet lagged. He's back from the mountain time zone and back from the thin air in the mile high city. Our Denver correspondent and my co host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. What's going on, man? Eventful week. Loved last week's pod with Will, number 300. Glad to be back for 301. Yeah, a little, I don't even know what's jet lag as much of it's, so I was wondering when I was going to Denver, because it was my first time going there, whether the altitude would affect me at all. Because I, some people had told me like, oh, even just like walking around, you'd feel it. I didn't find that. And I even got a couple of workouts in and felt pretty much fine. The only thing I noticed, and people there were telling me it's very much a thing. And then I Googled it and apparently it's very much a thing, is that the altitude can really mess with your sleep. And cause like almost uh, like insomnia like symptoms. So what the one thing I found is that I would go to sleep or try to go to sleep really tired at the end of like a long day there between work and media events and whatever, and find that I'd be like really really tired but unable to actually fall asleep. So that was the only thing I found. Now whether that had to do with the two hour time change or the altitude or perhaps combination of both, uh, the only, that's the only thing I found. But with with heat culture pulsing through my veins, I I fought through it. You could have tipped that. You could have tipped games one and two off on Everest, and I would have found a way. Wolf on as Eric Spolstra oh, said about the Miami Heat. <clears throat> I I do want to ask you off the jump before we get into some of the tactical minutia and basically everything we saw in games one and two of the finals. Just what was that experience like for you? What did you? learn being on the ground there what's uh what'd you learn in denver uh i learned jimmy butler's ankle is not great if you remember <laughs> he hurt his ankle a few weeks ago and yes of course and he hasn't been quite the same since then yeah. i know he he came back obviously he had some big moments in that series against the knicks and uh, a couple big games early in the conference finals against boston but he has not really approached the level that he was playing at in the first round against Milwaukee. And granted, he would have been hard-pressed to replicate that performance anyway. And he's seeing a lot of different types of defensive coverages than he saw in that series. But, you know, we'll uh, we'll call it some murmurings that you picked up on while you were there. <clears throat> I do think that was... Uh, not that I hadn't, like, thought about it or I'd forgotten about it, but it did sort of make something click for me in that Jimmy Butler, especially in that game one, we, you know, we can talk about the difference. He's not moving well at all. We can talk about the difference between him from game one to game two, but uh, he was just super passive. I thought in that game one, and it just had some moments where he sort of drifted and it makes sense. If that ankle is bothering him more than, you know, he or the heat are letting on, that would make a whole lot of sense and explain a lot in terms of the downturn in his offensive production. Yeah, so that was one thing that I thought was interesting. Uh, another thing, not game-related at all, and this is something like, it, this isn't just me, like a lot of different media people were talking about it. We were even talking to Denver media people about it, and they were saying it's just a thing. But So the crowd itself was great. The Denver crowd was great in the arena. But there was a stunning lack of like hype on the streets or like around the city. Like if you... Other than when you were at the game, it'd be very hard to know you were in a city that was like in the NBA finals was, it, it was really strange. And I, like I, I was saying to other media people, it felt like there's 20,000 Nuggets fans in the world and they're just all at the game. 
And there's like none other. And even, yeah, a couple other Denver media people being like, yeah, it's just kind of the thing there. So that was one thing. And then the other thing, not series related at all, but it was something I, well, I guess it's kind of series related. Something I thought was interesting when I was at the press conference for um, Rick Adelman receiving the Coaches Association Lifetime Achievement Award. And obviously people that know uh, Rick Adelman's son, David Adelman, the lead assistant on the Nuggets has also been up for a few head coaching gigs this uh, spring. What I didn't know is that, and Rick Adelman talked about it during his acceptance speech, is that uh, Rick's daughter actually went to school with Eric Spolstra in Portland. And Eric Spolstra was very tight with the Adelmans and was like at their house all the time. And so it's just like kind of another, like, I don't know, I, I get, it's not just basketball. I know you get this with all sports. There's always like some really good kind of behind the scenes stories, but it really is interesting, like, you know, you always hear NBA people talk about how small the circle is and how it really is this like intertwined family and everyone somehow knows everyone. And it's just a perfect example. Like Eric Spolstra and the lead assistant on the team he's coaching against have a somewhat family related history because he was friends of the family and was there all the time. Um, and then it just so happens that, you know, they end up the Adelmans become, you know, a great coaching family and Spolstra himself becomes a top 15 all time coach according to the 75th anniversary team. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, just in terms of like the work that you produced down there, like you had the story, obviously that you, you had to write, you had to go down there to to do the reporting for the story about heat culture and what it is and how to define it. And I know we kind of had a conversation about that on the last episode that we did together. And I thought that proved to be a pretty good jumping off point for a story that, I, I don't know, it seems like for the most part, it's not that the people within the organization aren't willing to talk about it, but they don't really talk about it with a ton of specificity, I don't think. I feel like Haslam is maybe the one guy who will kind of go in and and give you some real stuff about, you know, like what goes into it. Uh, but it seemed like Spo didn't really want to get into it. Yeah. Spo was no. not having it. <laughs> uh, Lowry gave some real boilerplate exactly. answers about it. Kevin Love but, literally said, well, that's the point. It's that you can't define it. <laughs> Right. So I don't know. I mean, you know me as a, as a skeptic of this yeah. whole enterprise. Look, th this organization, I mean, I'm sure they, they do certain things their own way, obviously. And in terms of like player development stuff and like the things that we've talked about, about sort of what sets this team apart, even just the way that they run their offense, which is kind of unconventional. Um, that, that stuff is all obviously real. But in terms of like, you know, what you would define, I guess, as culture, yeah, it's this very nebulous thing that I feel like is, you know, there's an element of survivorship bias where like when a team makes it this far, you know, has a great run like the heater on right now, it's a lot easier to chalk it up to these intangibles or these ineffable factors that, you know, aren't necessarily all that different from what you would find in a different organization. Yeah, and I think it helps the cause in terms of like, it's like spreading the news of the culture that their two most recent finals runs were unlikely, right? Like it was as a five seed and an eight seed. Like right. if the Heat are one seed doing that, even though obviously that still speaks to a good organization stuff, it's not at, at that point, it's just, well, they're a really good team and they're going far because they're a really good team. But because they're doing it as a team that didn't look the part of a team this good during the regular season. And then it's like, well, there's like a switch that was flipped or whatever mm -hmm. there. It's like, there's something to it. Or like, well, they're the team that, you know, they, 
they know how to win and when to win. It's it's that kind of whole thing. But as I've said before, even as a subscriber of Heat Culture, I do think a lot of times what gets overlooked when we talk about Heat Culture is just, well, they have a player who can flip the postseason switch like few other stars in the league, and they have arguably the best tactician as head coach. And if you go into the playoffs and a series with those two elements, you have a good, at least a good shot to compete in each series. Now, the one thing I will say, um, just quickly on the culture thing with, with Haslam, if there's one thing I learned about it, and I guess not that I thought I would hear any different from them, but I really genuinely was surprised at how to a man, whether you're talking to Jimmy Butler or like the 13th guy in the roster, like they genuinely believe that there is value in having Udonis Haslam around. And like, you can laugh at that, but like, I don't know. I'm I'm not in the locker room with them. And that that kind of stuck out to me because it was like it's like, you know, snicker at the thought of a 42-year-old who barely even logs garbage time anymore being the authority in a locker room full of players better than he ever was for the most part. But most other teams probably would have like transitioned this guy to either like a coaching role or a really minor front office role. Like they can still have him around. For whatever reason, like the heat. And the people around them, they see an actual value in him being in the locker room. And like to me, that's almost part of it. Like, I, I don't know how to define that, but I also don't know how to define heat culture. And they don't either. But like that's a part of it where it's like, I don't know if any other teams, probably not, keep a Udonis Haslam in the locker room. Because they probably see it's like, well, what are we really getting out of this? But whether you believe it or not, like the Heat think they're getting something out of that. And to me, that's almost part of it. Whether you believe in it or not, the fact that they think there is an actual value from having Udonis Haslam being a paid rostered member of the team is part of it. The one thing that it did sort of hit me, I don't know if you saw this <clears throat> John Schumann tweet from after game two, where he had the numbers from the Heat's playoff run so far, breaking it down by quarter. And on balance, they have lost each of the first three quarters throughout this postseason run, not by like a huge margin. I think one of them might've even been like their minus one, another one, like their minus 12, but they've lost each of the first three quarters. And in the fourth quarters during this run, they're plus 94. And it was basically like the carbon copy of what they did in 2020. And so it did strike me that maybe like the conditioning element of that and how seriously we know they take just being in shape and they are like an incredibly well-conditioned team. I think if you're pointing to one factor that could contribute to a team just being so much better in the fourth quarters than their opponents, you know, that would probably be the one thing that you could say like, yeah, that's probably having an effect. And fourth quarters for a visiting team in Denver specifically are supposed to be deadly and instead the heat even though they lost game one like they were pretty good in that fourth quarter Kyle Lowry especially like dragged them back into that game shockingly enough in game one and then obviously we saw what they did in game two so I think it's even more impressive that that has stood true even in Denver but to your point we hear about it every year like that is even in during the preseason you hear about how like new heat players see the difference and how difficult preseason kind of like conditioning cardio related training is for the heat than it is from any other team you remember last year the big i guess i was gonna say brouhaha a lot of people were upset about the the heat i think it was pat riley himself wasn't it telling the media that kyle lowry had to be in better shape this year like it's it's a thing there and to your point perhaps that's a part of the reason why they've been such a good fourth quarter team yeah i mean i think people were 
if people were upset about that, it seemed to me that it was because he had missed so much time last year because he was dealing with like a personal issue, you know? So it's kind of tough to throw a guy under the bus for his lack of fitness when, you know, there was a good reason for him to have missed all that time and, and not to have really been able to play himself into peak game shape. But yeah, generally speaking, I think, yeah, like that's obviously a big part of their identity. And I do think that shows through at points and it's not just about running up and down the court, right? It's about, when you are tired, it is harder to execute at a high level. And I think what we see time and time again from Miami late in games is that they do execute at an extremely high level, right? Like they run their stuff kind of at full speed. They're very precise and they don't make the kinds of mistakes that you see other teams make when they are tired late in games. And that has really allowed them to pull out a ton of close wins during this postseason run. And in that fourth quarter of game two, Cash, they scored 36 points on 20 offensive possessions. And I'm just doing the mental math in my head right now. That is a 180 offensive rating. And that's the thing. Like, you know, so many people were talking about whether on Twitter or even um, on the ground in Denver, uh, even asking Spo. And I don't know if you saw any of the post game when when Spolster made the comment about the undrained eye. But... Anyway, so much of it, we were like people making it about, you know, the defensive uh, difference and, oh, they, they turned Jokic into a scorer instead of a passer and how that impacted the Nuggets offense. The Nuggets offense was still really damn good in that game. And turning Jokic into a scorer was not like, you may feel differently, but I don't really think a big part of the Heat winning. The Heat offense was really good in that game. Like the, if, if there's a difference from game one and two, the Heat offense was clicking. The shots were falling as opposed to, to this defensive scheme they came up with to make Jokic a score just absolutely flummoxed the Nuggets. It wasn't it wasn't the defense so much. It was the Heat offense, pardon the pun, but caught fire. Yeah, I mean, if somebody could really explain to me how exactly Miami made Jokic a scorer, yeah. apart from just letting him see way too much Cody Zeller and like having his eyes light up and be like, oh, wow, I can be a scorer now. Did you, did like, you see the, the post for post game or the quote? Because I think you would have loved it. What, yeah, him like responding to Ramona Shelburne. I, I saw like, it. I mean, mid and I thought the the question itself I thought was fair. I'm not hating on. No, him I didn't. Him. I didn't think he had to be like. And he seemed to just want to get off the podium, and yeah, maybe he, that was part of why he was kind of mean spirited yeah. about it. But I didn't really get that line of thought at all. And I actually had a pretty big issue, and I I do want to get into talking about this in depth because it's a a big focus for me moving into game three. And I'm curious to see if Miami changes anything. I didn't like Miami's process specifically in terms of the way they lined up their rotation with the BAM and Zeller minutes, but in general, letting a guy score 41 points on 31 (laughs) shooting possessions is not good. And like you mentioned, basically you can frame it this way, right? Denver gave up a 129 offensive rating in the game to Miami, which is a monstrous number. And they had a shot to tie the game at the buzzer. So, yeah, this was not a a defensive win for Miami, even though I do think they did a lot of good things defensively. And that still matters, even if in a game where you surrender a 124 offensive rating to, you know, the best offensive team in the league the good things that you do defensively to win on those margins still matter. I'm not like throwing that out the window and saying, 
it's not important. I just think those things were a lot more nuanced than just like making Jokic a scorer. And I saw some people being like, oh, Jokic fell right into Miami's trap. Like, okay. He fell right into the trap by scoring 41 points on 31 shooting possession. Yeah. So absolutely trap. And I know you, so the other story you wrote in Denver was about Jokic and Jamal Murray and kind of what goes into to having these two stars who just really elevate their game in the playoffs. I thought that was a great story with some really good quotes, one of which came from an unlikely source in Reggie Jackson that I absolutely loved, where he said something to the effect of like, there's no such thing as leveling up. Like that level is obviously in you. It's all about preparation and the hard work that goes into it. Yeah, he used the quote that I, I had never heard of before, but I, I Googled it. Apparently, I think it's like an American Navy or military ter- uh, quote or something. I don't know who it's from exactly, but it's that uh, it, under pressure, you don't rise to the occasion. You sink to the level of your training. And that was the quote he used to, after, uh, to your point, he said, you know, there's no such thing as leveling up. And and yeah, that, I think I got better quotes for that story than I did for the heat culture story. Mm-hmm. Um but it was all about the fact – it's something I've talked about on the show before, just about the whole like Jokic and Marie being the NBA's best playoff duo thing, but also just how incredible it is that these two guys, these teammates, you know, whether Reggie Jackson wants to like call it leveling up or not, they level up in the post. Like not – and again, yes, I get what he's saying about the preparation. And he said, you know, like these two guys, like you – as an outsider, you don't actually, by watching them, you know, 82 plus times a year, you don't actually get to see the, you just get to see the fruits of their labor, but you don't see their like daily excellence and work they put in like we do. And obviously I get that, but there is some form of leveling up happening there because Jokic is already an MVP level superstar whose numbers go up and his impact goes up in the playoffs. Jamal Murray is a zero time all-star who looks like a superstar guard in the playoffs. Jamal Murray has four 40 point games in 410 regular season games. He had four 40 point games in his first 35 playoff games. Like at a certain point, I don't know what else to call it other than leveling up. And I thought it was interesting as well. Part of the reason I wanted to do that story is because our own Nick Ferris, one of the scores feature writers had a piece go up, I think last week that was really interesting. And it was about this study that was done at the university of Pittsburgh and, uh, they used monkeys for the experiment, which scientists will often do when it comes to neuroscience experiments because it's the animals that brains are obviously closest to humans. And basically what they found is in this experiment, um, when it when these monkeys had to do tasks, their performance rose as the um, rewards got marginally bigger. But as the re- potential rewards got much bigger, the performance tanked. And the the point of the study was to indicate that like our brains are actually wired to choke. It was a sports related experiment that was, and that was the point of it. And so like the thing is, especially when you get to like stars who are already performing so well at this point, it's like, we should be praising those guys. If they even just find a way to maintain their excellence as the stakes go up. And you've got this guy in Jokic and obviously Murray to a degree too, who find a way to every single postseason almost every single series continue to level up despite the baseline they're already working from and so I just thought that was a 
a really interesting thing. And I thought after game one, it was a perfect time to drop it. Got some good quotes, as you mentioned. So yeah, I was, I was happy with how that turned out. Glad to hear you enjoyed it. And even though they're in a one, one series, I mean, I, I think I said it after they swept the Lakers in the eight series that they've played together because you know, they to Murray missed the two years. They're six and two in playoff series. Like if they were to win the championship this year, which I still think they will, they would be, you know, champions at 28 and 26, having won seven of nine playoff series. Like, that is ridiculous. Is Jokic 28 already? Yeah, he is. He is. Wow. Um, all of that is why anytime somebody like chalks up an outcome to one team wanting it more, mm-hmm. especially at this stage, like if it's a re- you know regular season game, if it's like a January midweek game and a, and a team is like, plainly not fully invested in the outcome that's one thing but at this stage of the playoffs it is so patently absurd to chalk outcomes up to like desire when obviously all these guys desperately want to win it's more about how you go about dealing with that desire right like (laughs) i don't know i think max Struess tried shooting he tried really hard to make those threes go in yeah didn't care in game one wasn't interested in hitting those shots but yeah Anyway, so that's I, I play tennis a lot, and so like anyone, anyone who's played any sport, I think can probably relate to this. But I feel like tennis, especially, is like a very psychological game, and it's like a lot of the time you want it too much, like you're holding on too tight, and that, to your point, can really mess with your psyche. And once you it messes with your psyche, then your psyche messes with your body. So I do think, yeah, that makes it all the more impressive that Jokic and Murray have been able to do what they've been able to do on the biggest stage. But I don't know where you want to start with this because there are, there are some things we could talk about with Miami's defense in terms of the way they limited Murray in game two. But I do think we should we should start with talking about their offense because, again, 129 offensive rating. They did shoot 49% from deep. And, you know, a, a common theme in a lot of Miami's wins throughout the postseason has been they have been shooting the ball exceptionally well. Yeah, and I did. Uh, I, I, I that, did include that in that in that heat culture piece of like one of the one of the reasons you can laugh at like people like me that subscribe to heat culture is because a big part of their playoff success has been that they've been on the right side of the shooting pendulum, right? Like it has yeah. swung their way more often than not in these playoffs, and when it hasn't, they have lost. Yeah, I think I saw. I want to say it was Ben Taylor who had this stat that they had 10 games during the regular season where they shot 43% or better from deep and they already have eight such games in the postseason. So there have been 24 games, these playoffs where a team has been outshot by at least 10% from two point range in the playoffs. The rest of the NBA is six and 12 in those games as playoffs. The heat are four and two. Yeah. So the shooting helps obviously. Uh, But like I said before, it's like, that's a huge part of the game, right? You have to hit your shots. And whether we want to call it variance or whether we want to call it luck, it doesn't matter. Like the Heat hit those threes. After being the 28th ranked three-point shooting team in the regular season. Yeah. But as a lot of people have pointed out, they were number one in three-point percentage last season. Yeah. And a lot of guys just had down years shooting the ball this year. And maybe this is closer... (laughs) I don't know if this is what their true talent level is as a team shooting wise, but maybe what they did last year is more representative than what they did this year. I think that's totally fair to say. I also think just process wise, like they did a really good job creating open threes in that game too. 
And I thought Denver's defense was awful. Like just so many miscommunications, coverage breakdowns, honestly, like uncharacteristic mistakes for a defense that has actually been very good in the playoffs. Like coming into the finals, they were fifth in defensive rating out of all playoff teams, better than Miami, like a hair better than Miami, who is, you know, we like to think of as a defense first team and a very gritty, adaptable defense. Like this is the Denver Nuggets, whose whose defense was like the chief concern for their title prospects coming into the playoffs. And they were outperforming, you know, these other great defensive teams. And I thought their defense was great in game one. And it had some really good moments in game two, but the bad moments were very bad and very damaging. Like there were coverage breakdowns on the ball. There were breakdowns off the ball with their weak side help. And Miami did a lot to trigger those breakdowns. They ran very smart, very crisp, precise, purposeful offense that targeted weak spots for Denver in very creative ways. But I also think that a lot of the Denver errors were unforced. A couple of things that jumped out to me. One, Miami was doing a lot of, like they ran a ton of empty side pick and roll or pick and pop. And they there was a lot of ghosting, right? And I think that was sowing a ton of confusion for Denver because if one guy thinks it's a switch and one guy thinks they're staying, either two guys are wind up going with the guy who's slipping or two guys stay with the ball. But either way, one person is going to be open. And... That's where you get at like the the impact of Miami always sort of running their stuff at full speed. It makes it a lot easier to sow that kind of confusion because like the defense really has like a microsecond to react and decide whether it's a switch or not. And if the guy on ball doesn't feel a screen, then he's not necessarily going to know that he is supposed to switch. And so that, I mean, communication is key and like not letting Denver off the hook for miscommunicating and not like executing those switches uh, or just whatever the coverage call was like not executing it with any kind of precision. But I think Miami deserves a lot of credit for being able to sow that confusion with the precision and speed with which they were running those actions. And I thought, you know, that got Struess a ton of good looks from three Gabe Vincent as well. Like there was that really crucial stretch at the start of the fourth quarter, right? Where two possessions in a row, they run the exact same play. It's like a delay action with Bam holding the ball at the top of the key. Vincent goes to set the wide pin down in the corner for Robinson. The first time, you know, Robinson curls off the pin down. Christian Brown, who was guarding Robinson, and Bruce Brown, who was guarding Vincent, both go with Robinson on the curl. Vincent just pops out for a wide open three. Next time down, run the exact same thing. And this time Bruce Brown stays with Vincent, but Christian Brown winds up like he gets hung up on the screen and he is trailing Robinson, not even really in contact with him at all. And it's just a bounce pass to Robinson on the curl for a layup. Like good process from Miami, bad process from Denver's defense. Like that to me is just, that's a simple action with two pretty like-sized defenders. You should be able to execute a switch on that play, but uh, it was just sort of breakdown after breakdown over the course of the night for Denver. And I haven't even talked about Michael Porter Jr. yet, who was oh, like by wolf, far dude. by far the worst offender in that game. That was like, because he has made strides on the defensive end. He's made a lot of strides on the defensive end over the years, but that was like 
the worst defensive game I've seen. At least the worst defensive big game I've seen from him in a long time. Like that reminded me of watching him in that Utah series a few years ago that Denver ultimately won, but that he just looked like so out of place defensively on the court. And all of that kind of gets me to wondering, and I wanted to ask you this, because I think sometimes, a lot of times, especially in the playoffs, you can watch a team get torched defensively and think of possible solutions to it, or at least potential fixes of ways they can remedy that the next game, of ways they can adjust, whether it's a lineup thing, whether it's a scheme thing. But I'm with you in that like a lot of their game two defensive deficiencies like to me came down to what seemed like again I don't want to say a lack of effort but like some sort of lack of like focus or discipline or just like you know Mike Malone kind of said it after the game I know it's different he's a coach it's going to be kind of like coach talk but he talked about how like look like this is the finals like this isn't you know a random like we have to be really really locked in like on every single possession and I do wonder like how much in your opinion do you really think there is to adjust defensively and how much of it is just simply like the game plan might be there and it's just you got to lock the hell in and be disciplined and defend every possession as if it could be your last stick to the game plan you have and they'll be all right yeah almost entirely the latter like and i think that's really rare that that's actually the case in a playoffs game or series uh i don't think it's a it's as rare as you're making it out to be i think a lot of times i I mean not that there aren't, aren't adjustments to be made in almost any scenario like there are micro adjustments you could make from game to game um but in a macro sense i think denver's been mostly doing good things defensively like they've been mixing up their coverages you know Jokic is at the level against some guys and he's dropping back against others and i think they've been pretty consistent in terms of their principles in those coverages miami to their credit forced denver to change their approach in a couple of those scenarios, right? Like start of the series, Jokic was dropping back against Gabe Vincent. Not really doing that anymore because Gabe Vincent is shooting the fucking lights out right now. Like even Kyle Lowry, right? Like he's, I don't know what he's shooting from three in this series, but like he's been able to burn the drop pretty effectively. And on a couple very key possessions down the stretch in that game too, he was able to pull Jokic out of the drop and that opened things up for Bam on the roll. I thought also, you know, Miami's spacing was just flat out better. That goes to their floor balance. It also goes to them just putting more shooting on the floor. Uh, Duncan Robinson, obviously able to come in and make a huge impact in that fourth quarter. I'm sure we'll get into talking about Kevin Love and that lineup adjustment because I thought that was huge. But better spacing in terms of, I think, punishing Denver's help, especially when they're pulling over to try and help with the nail. And that led to a lot of long and really sloppy closeouts from the Nuggets, especially down the stretch in that game. But again, certain things, especially with Porter Jr., right? Like his weak side assignment, whether it was like tag and recover, whether it was like a weak side exchange, whether it was an X out, like one Jimmy Butler drive, like MPJ is overloading the strong side, which they've had him do, you know, throughout the postseason. Butler drives. And MPJ kind of like lingers for too long. He gets hung up on the baseline and the kickout goes to the wing. Like KCP is zoning up two guys because MPJ went to help on the drive. And it's KCP's rotation of the corner, right? But MPJ also starts to rotate back out to the corner when he needs to X out to the wing and boom, another Gabe Vincent wide open three. Like 
And he was involved in a lot of the miscommunications on those ghost actions that I mentioned before. Like he was just awful. And the fact that he can't hit a three to save his life right now is just compounding that, right? Like that's what he is on the floor to do. And like you mentioned, he is a much improved defender this season. We've talked about it a bunch on this show, but this was like 2020 MPJ defense, man. It was really, really bad. So they have a lot of stuff to clean up, but I don't think big picture apart from maybe like trying to scale back some of that gap help and like honestly like force jimmy to be more of a scorer like i think even though he was much better in that regard in game two i still think you're letting him off the hook a little bit by by allowing him to be a playmaker and i don't know that they need to load up on him to that extent but apart from that i think it's just like executing better that's sort of it i completely agree by the way you had uh because you had Mentioned it. Kyle Lowry, five of nine from three in the series. He's taken three shots inside the arc. He's made one of them. Yeah. He's taken nine, nine threes. He's made five of them. Like, what is Vincent in the series? Like, both of those guys have just been absolutely lights out from deep. And it's like that is actually forcing Denver to cha- change their coverage. Gabe laughing. Nine of 16 from deep in this series. Yeah. So there you go. And, and that's where it's like, like to have a game where you shoot 49% from deep, right? Like, that'll happen. But it's not just about actually seeing those shots go through the net. It's about, okay, you've actually done something to make Denver change what they're doing defensively. And that is unlocking a ton of other stuff for Miami's offense. Like that is forcing Denver to bring Jokic up to the level. It's putting them in rotation. It's opening up those rolling opportunities for Bam. Max Struess, like after that barrage, he hit four threes in the first quarter, didn't hit one for the rest of the game. But guess what? He got six assists which is twice as many as he's gotten in any other game this postseason because he is taking advantage of being able to draw two to the ball. We, so we, we just mentioned Vincent Struess in love and I just I had tweeted it after the game too. And, and not even not even because I want to like highlight the holy culture thing, just because I think it's insane, batshit insane. But I hope people have taken just a few seconds to reflect on how insane it is. Like a team starting Max Struess, Gabe Vincent, and the 2023 version of Kevin Love are three wins away from a championship. And a team starting those three guys with Jimmy Butler 14 of 33 in the first two games is in what is technically now a best of five for the title with home court advantage. Like, I still think the Nuggets are going to win, but this is so ludicrous. It really boggles the mind. Do you want to take a stab at what Jimmy Butler's on-off net rating differential is in the playoffs so far? I'm going to assume because you're asking that perhaps it's negative. <laughs> Just take a stab, whatever, like off the top I mean, of your if you, head. If, if you had an ad, I would have said like somewhere between plus three to plus five per 100. Yeah, so it's minus 14.6. <laughs> They are a shade better than neutral with Butler on the floor uh, as plus 0.4 per hundred possessions. And with him on the bench, they're plus 15 per hundred possessions. So yeah, uh, it really hasn't just been about Butler who has been transcendent at points, but at other points, it's really been a top down, unbelievable team-wide effort from Miami. And that was certainly the case in that game too. Well, one point real quick I wanted to make, and not even a point, just a, a Spo thing I wanted to mention. So, because you, 
you know, you talked about how the big adjustment of going back to love in the starting lineup for game two. And Spolstra actually, after game two, rather than taking any credit for that, because I can't remember who had asked him about it, actually said it was a mistake on our part in game one, and that's on me. And his reasoning was, you know, if you recall, this had become their starting lineup through the playoffs. I think, as he Mm -hmm. said, they started 13 games like this or something. And he said, we made the adjustment, which we thought was an important adjustment specific to the Celtics matchup to go with Martin. And, you know, the proof is in the pudding there. But then he said, it's one of those cases where like sometimes you adjust, something works, and then you just stick with it. But what he was insinuating is like, that's my mistake because we should have left the Celtics series behind and realized new matchup, we should go back to the original starting five. It makes more sense for Love to start. And I just thought that was really interesting because there was part of it where it's like, Part of it is Spo was in one of those moods this week where it was just kind of like, no matter what a reporter said to him, he was going to tell you why you were wrong and your untrained eye doesn't understand whether you were asking about heat culture or asking about their defensive schemes or whatever. But I I did think it was interesting and uh, honestly refreshing too that a coach would be – it's one thing for a coach to deflect praise. You get that a lot. But I think it's rare for a coach to straight up say – not even just it was on me, but like to get in that detailed into the whole like we got too comfortable in this one thing that worked for us and we shouldn't have because the matchup was new and we should have gone back. Like I, I just thought that was really interesting and refreshing and I, I think it's an interesting point as well. Yeah, it's like the conversation we have all the time about being proactive versus being exactly. reactive, right? Exactly. And I think credit to him for being reactive in a very timely manner. I think there are a lot of coaches who would have waited even longer to make that switch. But I also think it's like a fair self-criticism. And I actually think they waited too long to pull him from the rotation in the Celtics series. Like that stuff does still happen even to the best coach in the NBA. So I, I always remember the Bucks Raptors, you know, not, not to pile on Bud here, who obviously gets a lot of criticism already for not being proactive um, but if you remember the 2019 Bucks Raptors East final, there were a lot of calls from myself included to start Brogdon mm-hmm. early in that series. And after game three, when the Raptors survived that overtime game, someone asked, I think a Bucks media person asked Bud about it at the post-game presser. Now, I think Brogdon ends up starting game four. But anyway, after game three, Bud got very defensive and his response was essentially like something along the lines of like, well, we were up to nothing. I thought of that when Spo was talking about how like, you know, it's on him and they got too comfortable. I thought about that moment with Budenholzer in 2019 where he was essentially like, well, we were up to nothing. Why would I have changed? You can be proactive. You don't have to wait for the first loss or you don't have to wait for something to go wrong to make the switch if it's actually the right decision. So do you think Spolster would have made this switch if Miami had won game one? No, no. And that, but that's my point, right? Even a good, great coach, even a guy yeah. that we both think, I think is the best coach in the league. Yeah. And I will say, it's like, I wasn't necessarily thinking, like it was definitely a potential adjustment. Uh, it was a potential adjustment that we talked about even coming into the series, but it wasn't one that I thought was like patently obvious, like staring yeah. everybody in the face, even after game one. Because here's the thing. The adjustment very much worked in game two. That doesn't mean that it's just like a permanent solution. And Denver, now that they've seen it, like I would expect to come out with some ready-made counters and a way to sort of exploit Kevin Love at the defensive end. So it's not like 
I'm not going to pretend like this was some patently obvious thing that I was calling for after game one. I think there are a lot of reasons it made sense. I think there are also a lot of reasons why it still might not be a panacea. But let's take the break there and we can come back. We can talk about that adjustment and why and how it worked. And I want to talk about Denver's offense and Miami's defense on the other side of the break. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. Okay, Cash. So Kevin Love comes back into the starting lineup, and what that allows Miami to do is they have Kevin Love guarding Aaron Gordon, and that means they can put Jimmy Butler on Jamal Murray. And I wrote about this after game one. Like the big thing with the way that Denver started that game one, making a point of getting Aaron Gordon involved, they put him in action with Jamal Murray. You know, a lot of off-ball stuff where it's like, okay, you can you can switch it if you're like worried about Jamal Murray coming off of this screen and getting open for a three. But then Aaron Gordon is going to mash the smaller guy that you switch on to him on the backside. And they were absolutely abusing those mismatches this third game one. Yeah. Six straight field goals in the first quarter he hit just by like sealing Struess, Vincent, even Caleb Martin, like he, anytime he had a size mismatch, he took advantage of it. And Jokic being the great passer that he is and being able to see over top of a smaller Miami Heat team just hit him every time. Like they basically had to have Jimmy Butler on Aaron Gordon in that game one because he abused any other matchup you saw. And that was a huge deal because I think the matchup that they want to get to is to have Butler on Murray. And they were able to do that for basically any of... I don't know what Kevin Love wound up playing, maybe like 20 minutes in game two. Uh, They were able to get to that matchup that they wanted with Butler on Murray. That was a big part of their ability, I think, to slow Murray down. And Gordon obviously couldn't get going to the same extent either because while Kevin Love is not a good defender, he is a big, strong dude who, against a player like Aaron Gordon, who's going to do the bulk of his damage on like cuts and post-ups and stuff going to the rim can serve as more of a deterrent than, you know, the smaller defenders in Miami's rotation. Yeah, Aaron Gordon's not breaking anyone down. Uh, Not that he can't, but like he's not, for the most part, he's not breaking anyone down off the dribble and like beating another big man with his quickness as much as he is using his strength and stuff like that inside. And, And to your point, Kevin Love can actually hang with that to some degree. Yeah, and that's where I actually thought that Denver fell short in terms of like reacting to that Miami adjustment was like, Yo, you can still have Gordon like setting a ton of ball screens and off ball screens and putting Kevin Love in action. Like, don't let him off the hook. I thought they let him off the hook to a certain extent. Like, make him defend ball screens. Make him defend Jamal Murray, you know, like coming off a pin down or a flare or, uh, you know, a step up screen. Like, I I didn't think they did nearly enough of that. And I understand why. It's like, you don't. You don't want to completely reorient your offense to just like play through Aaron Gordon. And like hunt and that's Kevin Love, yeah. But then I just think about the off-ball stuff that they ran in game one that was so successful where, like I mentioned, if the Heat were switching it, then Gordon would just mash the mismatch in the post 
And then on the times that the Heat tried not to switch it, you would have these breakdowns where then that would allow Jamal Murray to like slip free for a back cut. Or they ran that play that they love to run where it's like Murray sets the back screen for Gordon and then comes up to take the handoff from Jokic. And if you're not switching that, the guy who's guarding Murray is going to be trailing him because he'll have to hold up Gordon on the cut, essentially. And then Murray is usually going to get a wide open three out of that. So I just think they have to sort of make that untenable, I think, from from Miami. Like, really pick at that matchup as much as they possibly can. Because in, in game two, I think Miami had an 82 defensive rating with Kevin Love on the floor. <laughs> Interestingly enough, like, that, that adjustment helped them way more at the defensive end than it did at the offensive end. Um, but even at the offensive end, though Kevin Love didn't shoot the ball well, like the added spacing that he brings does really matter. And and I think, you know, like that really applies to Duncan Robinson too. And it's been a story throughout the playoffs when Miami just wants to put more shooting on the floor and then just do their utmost to protect the defensively vulnerable shooters that they want to put out there. They've been able to do it and they've been able to do it with like Love and Robinson so far in the series. And here's another stat for you, Cash. Do you know who has the lowest individual on-court defensive rating in Miami's rotation this postseason? Are you about to tell me it's Duncan Robinson? Of course I am. Duncan Robinson. (laughs) 107.3 on-court defensive rating in the playoffs. And that's not in like a tiny sample either. It's like 360 minutes. So This is why you don't subscribe to heat culture. You say it's devil magic because of things like that. I mean, I don't know how else to describe it except to say that like when Robinson's on the floor, they're usually in a zone and their zone has been very effective, including at points against Denver. And I still don't think it's like a long-term solution for them against Denver, but the different wrinkles that they've thrown into that zone to make it work, even when Jokic is on the floor, that in itself is so impressive to me. Like just their ability to tweak it in ways where it's like, yo, we can stay in a zone. We can protect Duncan Robinson this way. And he's also, it's not like he's just being hidden in the zone. Like he's actually really good, I think, at defending in the zone. Almost never out of position, like knows exactly where to be and where to rotate to. Doesn't screw up. And he's got size too, right? So it's like if he's just guarding an area instead of an individual man, he can be pretty effective. But in terms of just like the formation of that zone where sometimes it looks like a 1-3-1 or sometimes more like a 2-2-1, I guess, but they're overloading the middle, whereas usually you see a zone and it's like the middle is what's open. They're making a point of closing off that space at like the nail area so that Jokic isn't getting comfortable catches there. And in game two, it was like, I don't even think I've ever seen this before where guys are fronting Jokic in the middle of the zone. Like Gabe Vincent... Caleb Martin fronting him in the middle of the zone, just like doing whatever they can to make sure that he can't get comfortable catches in the middle of it. We saw them do this actually throughout the course of the regular season, but like they like to flow from a full court press into their zone so that even when like Denver is sort of like initiating and when they are able to get Jokic the ball in the middle of the floor, like they've taken a ton of time off of the clock frustrated Murray like that a few times in game two where he nearly turned it over at one time I think actually did just trying to break that full court press getting out of the backcourt yeah and there was another time I think where like you know they they were just just hurrying Denver up right and and one of those I think led to Jokic caught the ball on the wing and Vincent was on him and Jokic bowled him over for a charge another time he threw the ball out of bounds like 
Denver has still found some ways to attack that zone, but it has thrown them out of rhythm. And ultimately, any coverage against Denver, like that's all you can ask is like, just throw them out of rhythm for a bit until you can get to the next thing. Because you're never just going to do one thing against them that's not going to work. It's like, can you buy yourself some time? Can you get like six, seven, eight possessions where you junk it up and they're a little bit out of sorts? And then when they seem to have figured it out, you move on to something else. That's what Miami's defense does, you know, better than almost any defense in the league, I think. Yeah, and I do think it is really interesting because even a lot of times, like you th- just think of a standard zone and you so many times will hear that the solution, oh, well, other than shooting your way out of it, but like the solution to attacking a zone is often get the ball to the middle of the floor, like get to the middle of the zone and have a, especially advantageous to have a big man who can make plays from there, from the middle of the zone. And like, that's how you break it with shooting around it. And in this case, you've got this heat zone that has found a way to defend that middle and really overload it and neutralize the exact type of player who you would think is like a zone buster. And obviously Jokic can be like, it's Jokic, but it's, it's really interesting because that is the exact type of player type and spot of the floor where you would think you can bust the zone up. And instead the Heat's, one of their many zone schemes has actually found a way to muck it up there instead. Yeah. And I, I saw some people on Twitter were saying that it almost looked like a box in one, which is, again, I don't know that I, I think I, kind of agree that that is what it is but i've never seen a box and one where the one is inside the box yeah that's that's really interesting it's just yeah like inventive and bold honestly to to do something that seems kind of counterintuitive which is play a zone against like the nba's ultimate zone buster and again like he did in game one Jokic eventually did get comfortable against that zone and that's why you just like can't let him see it too often but that's two games in a row where basically they didn't let him see it until the fourth quarter. And then suddenly they ran it out there for like an extended stretch and actually had a decent amount of success with it. So even though ultimately, yes, it was Miami's offense and Denver's bad defense that swung this game in the Heat's favor. The fact that they found these things, even for little stretches of time, that were able to jam Denver's offense up a little bit still matter. So yeah, obviously I'm, I'm curious to see if that can continue. Because uh, Denver's answer has sort of been to just like pick and roll their way through that zone. And sometimes that's worked and sometimes it hasn't. But uh, I just think Miami's willingness to to try all these different things and to be able to execute those things is, uh, you know, continually impressive. But you said you still expect Denver to win the championship. So do I. I still see them as having like way more matchup advantages than Miami does. And I... I keep coming back to this. So I hinted at this earlier. Like, let's talk about proactive adjustments, right? Miami won game two. A proactive adjustment that I think they need to make is to hard match Bam's minutes with Jokic's minutes. Because not doing that in game two was nearly disastrous. Like if they had lost the game, that would have been why. Because letting Jokic see Cody Zeller as his primary matchup, like... That's how you make Jokic a scorer, right? But that's not a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's not a good way to make Jokic a scorer. So the, the idea, I guess, is, okay, so when Jokic hits the bench, then you have Bam out there to kind of like be the best player on the floor in the, you know, the non-Jokic minutes. But that's not a good use of Bam 
because A, his calling card is defense. He's by far your best defensive option for the best offensive player in the world. So lean into his value by using him in that matchup as often as possible. But also offensively, Bam is not like a post-up threat at all. You don't want him posting up. You want him catching the ball on the move in the middle of the floor, short roll or DHO trigger. And I almost don't him- care. Oh, so I was just, I was just, I almost don't care who the matchup is. Even if it's a giant size mismatch, Bam posts up, that's a win for the defense. A hundred percent. And it was like that stretch where Denver absolutely went off in the second quarter. Miami kept trying to post Bam up. He couldn't score. They turned the ball over a ton trying to enter the ball to him. And Denver was just scoring off a of runouts over and over and over again. Like him against a smaller lineup, especially one that has like big bruisers in it, like Jeff Green and Aaron Gordon, that's not a good offensive matchup for him. And even like he struggles against defenses that switch, right? Like even when he was getting switches against, you know, Jamal Murray, he wasn't able to punish him in the post because that's, that's not what makes him a good offensive player. And you think about the difference between that and having him on the floor when Jokic is on the floor, when you are able to like put him in those DHOs and pick and rolls and like have him be the hub who is consistently catching the ball in the middle, whether it's with a numbers advantage or they're just like running delay action around him or the DHO stuff. He's more valuable as a defender and as like an offensive hub when he's on the floor with Jokic out there as well. So I just didn't really get it. And I know it was only eight minutes in the game. Um, well, it was actually 14 if you include the Bam on and Jokic off minutes. So eight minutes with Jokic on and Bam off. Uh, six minutes with Bam on and Jokic off. And in those 14 minutes, Miami was a minus 22 wow. in game two. In the 34 minutes with Bam and Jokic both on the court, Miami was a plus 25. That's where I'm like... Just make that adjustment. If you want to keep playing Zeller, play him when Jokic is on the bench and keep Bam and Jokic hard matched. Because, you know, like Zeller, it's not like he's going to eat against Denver's small lineup either, but he can maybe get you some offensive rebounds and he's not going to be food on defense. You can get six solid minutes out of Zeller if Jokic isn't on the court. Jokic is playing 40 to 42 minutes in the playoffs. You need six to eight minutes from Zeller, but you only need them when Jokic is on the bench. I completely agree with you. Even if it was only five to eight minutes, but with Jokic on, you're not getting good ones from Zeller. Like it's just almost an unfair ask at that point. So let him give you his five to eight solid minutes, but do it in a situation that is much more possible for him to have like even a net neutral impact. Yeah, 100%. So I just think that's like, that should be an easy and impactful adjustment that Miami could make. Like a small tweak that could go a long way toward tilting things more in their favor. And a situation where, you know, I don't think they should look at this as like, well, we won game two. Let's keep doing what what we did. Be proactive. Make that adjustment. Keep Bam and Jokic tethered together in those minutes. They were actually, they were minus nine in those minutes in game one, but I don't think that was really on account of Bam. Again, I think in that game one, Bam actually offensively in those minutes was still really effective on the roll. So that just makes a lot more sense to me. And then the la- the last thing I had in terms of Miami's defense was just the way they defended Murray, which was 
like the Jokic Murray two-man game demolished them in game one. And in game two, it was definitely more a focus to like send more bodies at Murray and engage a third defender in the Murray Jokic actions. But where you would usually see like the way to, the way that a lot of teams, if they're engaging a third defender in a two-man action, will do it is like the screen defender will jump out and blitz the ball handler. And then the third guy is coming over with the tag. But I think for Miami, it was more guys stunting really aggressively from the wing in the corner. And it was easier for them to do that in zone as well. But like just for the entire game, lots of stunts at Murray, not from the screen defender. Cause Bam's like not coming out and blitzing. Really? You might've done it a couple of times, but he's like playing like a high drop essentially against Murray, right? Like the, the extra bodies are coming from elsewhere. And I thought that was an interesting gambit because they're able to throw more pressure at Murray that way without letting Jokic just like roll into four on threes. Right. And even if like, if he is rolling, like the tag is there early and their help behind it was pretty solid. Um, like he had a couple and like one play where he just like caught the ball with one hand and like tapped it to, to Gordon cutting from the corner. Like he will do that. But I thought, you know, making a point and obviously Butler being able to guard Murray more was a big part of this, but like making a point of, suppressing Murray, especially as a scorer, was a big part of whatever defensive success they had in game two. Uh, although Murray did wind up with 10 assists against only one turnover. So I thought that was interesting. And I, in terms of like counters for Denver, I think it's just sort of like being prepared for where that help is going to come from and like making a point of finding those passes early and keeping Miami in rotation, extending advantages. Like that really comes down to like MPJ has to make shots. I don't know, man. He he just has to be way better uh, on both sides of the ball. Yeah, but but especially if he's going to be something close to disastrous defensively, he's he better give you something close to excellent on the offensive end, like from a shooting perspective. And yeah, I'd still be inclined good. to trust the sample that we've seen over the course of this season and postseason to be like he's not that guy defensively anymore. He had a bad yeah. game. He'll be better. But if he gives you like even one more defensive showing like that, I think you just got to yank him and play Bruce Brown in his stead. Like I think it's it, it's kind of that simple. Three of seventeen from deep for MPJ in this series. <sighs> Woof. So you could say that's like bound to turn around, right? You're like sick. he's a good shooter. shooter. Eventually, he will shoot better. But it's kind of like there's no more runway, and if he's just in a shooting funk for two more games, like. Your season could be on the brink, you know, like you got to react to what's happening in the moment. And I don't know how much longer you can be like, well, eventually MPJ is going to shoot his way out of this. He feels to me like he's on thin ice and he's so important to Denver. So that's kind of a a precarious pressure point for them right now. Like Miami is finding ways to attack him on defense and he's not giving them nearly enough at the other end. So that's one to watch for sure moving forward. But uh, do you have anything else on this series? Has it? Swings back to Miami. I think I am tapped out. I think I am as well. So let's leave all that there. Uh, do you want to hit us with a fan shout out before we sign off here? Or Yep. Fan shout out this week goes out to V. That's how she goes on Instagram. With uh, The name is also Peanut, but with an H. So like Peanut. <laughs> um, but uh, she reached out via Instagram a few weeks ago after... I don't know what episode that was, but it was the one we recorded on my birthday when you wished me happy birthday. So 
any listeners found out that was my birthday. She sent me an Instagram message that day uh, saying happy birthday and then saying pound the rock brought Fugazi back into my lexicon. So <laughs> I had to give V a shout out because that's one of my favorite reach outs of all time. So thank you, V. Happy to happy to expand your vocabulary by bringing Fugazi back into your lexicon. It is a word that should be in all of our lexicons as long as it's used selectively and only when it really counts for the true frauds in our lives and in the NBA. Uh, but on that note, V, thank you. Thanks for supporting the show. As we get into the 300s now, and the usual reminder to all of our listeners, whether you listen for the first time today or for the 301st time, reach out on social media, on Instagram at Joe underscore 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 cash. Email myself, joseph.casharo at the score.com or joe at joe.wolfond at the score.com. Hit him up on Twitter at Joey underscore double Y-O-U or myself at Joseph Cacharo and let us know how long you've been listening, where you listen from, what you like or don't like about the show. And we will make sure to get you a well-deserved shout out on a future episode. Yes, indeed. Thank you as always to all of our listeners for riding with us. And a huge thank you to Cash, who was planning to take the day off today to recover from whatever jet lag or altitude hangover he is dealing with right now. But heat culture warrior that he is. He decided to embrace the grind and jump on with me anyway. Cash, appreciate you, man, and looking forward to when we get to do this next, which actually is not going to be at the tail end of this week because it is my birthday, oh, and go. I'm going to be taking the day off. So uh, we will probably be back early next week with many more thoughts on, I guess at that point, we will have seen five game games. Four is Friday, game five is Monday. So if we say, try to come back like Tuesday or something, it would be after game five. Let's come back Tuesday after game five. We'll put that in the calendar right now. So <laughs> three games between now and then. I'm just going to throw it out there. I'm going to predict that it's going to be 3-2 Denver after that game five. And that is when we will be reconvening. What do you think? I completely agree with that. I think it's going to end up being Nuggets and six. I think they split in Miami. And then I think Denver wins game five and six. Do you think Miami takes game three though? In, terms, in that split, or does Denver come out and make a statement and then Miami responds in game four? That's exactly what I think is going to happen. I think it's going to go Denver, Miami, Denver, Denver. Okay, let's go with that. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk to you guys on Tuesday. Until then, take it easy. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolf on Pound the Rock. 